you're able, would you remain standing for a moment longer for the reading of God's Word? We're back to the book of Ephesians, chapter 6. We're going to read verses 14 through 20 of Ephesians, chapter 6. This is the word of our Lord, Ephesians 6, starting at verse 14. Stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, above all, taking the shield of faith which, with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this, and with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints, and for me, that utterance may be given to me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. This is the word of our Lord. Let us pray together. Father, we pray that you would open our hearts, open our eyes, open our ears to see Glorious things concerning you, concerning us, concerning the Lord Jesus Christ, even as we consider your word today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. In middle school and high school and early college, sports were a big part of my life. Uh, and at times, sports were all my life. That's, that's what I lived for. Everything else was secondary. Sports was the thing to do. Uh, for a season, I would practice five o'clock in the morning, then noon, and then at six in the evening, uh, averaging about 25,000 meters a day in the pool. Um, I know meters, you might not know what that is, but it's about three feet per meter uh, uh, there. So about 75,000 feet in the pool uh, per day, and that's all that that was in my life. That's all I did, and that was the biggest part of my life. And, uh, you know, when it came to race day or game day, I had all kinds of rituals that I would follow in order to be ready for that day, and these rituals included putting on the best possible equipment that I believed that was going to enable us to perform to the best of my ability. Now, I have to admit that most of that was superstition, that objectively, the way, the order in which you put the equipment on, the order you do this or that, had nothing to do with how I was going to perform. Now, as we read this passage, and what we read in this passage this morning, is the opposite of what my putting on equipment back in high school and college meant. Paul is not talking about sports and superstitions that have no real consequence in life when he wrote about putting on the whole armor of God. He's talking about the only way for a Christian to live his life, for a Christian to live her life in this world. Putting on the whole armor of God doesn't enable us to live a better life. That's not what Paul is calling us here, to live a better life. Putting on the whole armor of God is the only way we can survive in this life. That's the stake. Those are the stakes of what Paul is talking about here. We are not strolling through life. 
You may think you're doing that, but that's not reality. We're not strolling through life. We are in the middle of a massive cosmic war against the most powerful enemy who is not interested in taking prisoners. And he doesn't care if he survives or not as long as he takes you down. That's life. That's the life that you're living right now. And these are sobering thoughts if we let them sink in. And if we leave it to here, life looks grim. But our God, who is merciful, who is good, who is gracious, has given us everything that we need, not only to fight the war of life, but to thrive in it. And this passage describes the goodness of God in equipping us to live this life like we are supposed to do, as warriors, as those who are fighting for our lives, because that's exactly what we are doing. We're approaching the end of this passage. There are two elements of the full armor of God left, the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit. Lord willing, today we're going to look at the helmet of salvation. But even before we get there, let us take a look at the previous pieces of the armor that we have already considered. There are four of them, starting with the belt of truth that makes us ready to fight. And as you remember, when we consider that, we saw that that means that when we put on the belt of truth, we, that we embrace the objective truth of God. But not only that, not only we embrace what is true, we also speak truthfully in our life. We speak what is true in love, desiring that we all grow into the fullness of Christ. We speak the truth when truth is not popular. If we are going to stand against the wiles of the devil in this life, we cannot sit quietly practicing a false piety that says nothing to a world that's fast approaching its destruction. As I've said, the only hope this deluded and woke world has is the truth of the Word of God, and we, the Church of Jesus Christ, have that truth. If we do not fight the war that Satan's putting, that God's putting before us against Satan, if we don't fight it by putting the belt of truth, that is by speaking the truth, embracing truth, and speaking the truth to this world, we are not going to survive. Our children and grandchildren will not survive. We also call to put on the breastplate of righteousness that protects our hearts in battle. We withstand the attacks of the devil by trusting that our standing before God has nothing to do with any good in us, but only with the work of and person of the Lord Jesus Christ counted as ours solely by faith in Him. This positional righteousness, that is, the fact that we stand in Christ, we always will always translate in practical righteousness that is in holy living, but we don't stand before Satan saying, I'm here in my own goodness, in my own righteousness. We stand because of Christ, because Satan is the accuser of the brethren. And you say, here, Satan, I stand before you as a really good person. Satan will say, oh, yes. And in 30 seconds, he will show to you that you're not a good person. You know why? Because you're not. So the only way to fight Satan is to realize that and to know that you don't need to stand in your own goodness and righteousness, but you stand in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. 
imputed to you, counted to be yours only and solely by faith in what Christ has done and whom Christ is. To the belt and to the breastplate, we add the shoes. We put on the shoes of the gospel of peace in order to be prepared to fight against the devil. We put on the shoes of the gospel of peace by appropriating the gospel, that is, believing what it says, but also by proclaiming it, by propagating the gospel. And then we put on the shield of faith, that is, we put on the content of the faith once delivered to the saints. Satan is constantly throwing stuff at us. He's constantly trying to destroy us. We are able to stand these attacks by knowing what God says. And I don't mean by just quoting scripture, which you should, but knowing the overall teaching of the scriptures. Knowing theology is a great defense against the attacks of Satan. And this brings us to the new piece of the whole armor of God, the helmet of salvation. We tend to think of salvation in a very narrow and precise way. We tend to think of salvation as that moment that we came to faith in Jesus Christ, that from that moment on, when we die, we go to heaven and not hell. And this is a way, a proper way to think of salvation. It is one element of salvation. Uh, theologians call this element of salvation as justification, the moment we believe in Jesus, and from that moment on, we're saved, and we're going forever be with Him. But there's not, this is not all that the Bible says concerning salvation. The, the terms in the Bible associated with salvation uh, speak of much more than just that moment in which we were saved. All of salvation, all of the Christian life, all from regeneration to glorification, from the moment we're born again to the moment that we're glorified, the Bible calls it salvation. And that's the helmet, that's the, the sense in which Paul uses that word salvation here in Ephesians chapter 6. We put on that helmet, we put on all, put on all that God means by His saving work in Jesus Christ. The Bible teaches that we were saved in the moment that we placed our faith in Christ. In Romans 8, 23 and 24, Paul says, Not only that, but we also who have the first roots of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body, for we were saved in this hope. But the Bible also says that we have been saved and remain in that state of salvation. Not only were we saved in the past, but we remain in that state of being saved. Ephesians 2, 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. Paul uses in the original language all kinds of unnecessary words in this verse. Because what he actually says is that, For by grace you are having been saved. He put some extra words there that doesn't come through in English. But that's who we are. We are people who stand in the state of having been saved. So not only have we been saved in the past, the truth that we have been saved in the past remains true now. now is, is that, remember the, uh, the old Sprint commercial? Is that, I think it was this. No, Tim, whoever the carrier was. Can you hear me now? Can you hear me now? Can you hear me now? That's... As a believer, you go, am I saved now? Am I saved now? Am I saved now? Yes. Every moment you are saved, you have been saved and you remain saved. And the scriptures also speak of our currently being saved. The word salvation is also used for our growth in Christ. That's what theologians call our sanctification. First 1 Corinthians 1.18, Paul says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us 
who are being saved, it is the power of God. So salvation is not only that, that moment that we first came to faith, is not just the effect of that moment, but is also our growing in faith as we are sanctified. And we will be saved. The final exoneration and glorification, as Paul says in Romans 5, 9 and 10, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For we, if, we, if when we were enemies were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. We were saved. We are in the state of having been saved. We are being saved. And we are going to be saved. All that is that helmet of salvation. That's what we put on. The fact that we stand in Christ from beginning to end. That's what we put on. Paul brings this all together when he uses the same allegory of the helmet in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 8, where he says, But let us who are of the day be sober, put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. The hope of salvation is the return of the Lord Jesus Christ and the resurrection of the body. Now, it's, it's difficult to come up with 100% certainty why Paul used this illustration of a helmet. Paul doesn't use every part of the Roman armor here. There are some things that he doesn't include. He doesn't include the, uh, the two spears that every Roman soldier carried. He doesn't include the shin guards that every Roman soldier also uh, uh, carried. He doesn't include uh, another part of the helmet that uh, every Roman uh, soldier carried. So it, it's, we're not sure why he, he included the helmet here. But I think there's a great application of this idea of putting the helmet of salvation on your head. The helmet of salvation protects the mind of the Christian and shapes the way that he or she thinks in the fight against the devil. It is very important that we realize that how we think is going to really determine whether we stand the wiles of the devil or not. And I want to suggest you five ways in which thinking about our salvation that is putting on the helmet of salvation will influence the way that we fight Satan in, the light, in our lives. Because, look, if you're a believer, you are fighting Satan. Now, he may be winning, and he might not even realize it, that you're fighting Satan, but you are, because that's how God describes your life. So let me give you five ways in which putting on the helmet of salvation, thinking about our salvation as we live life, will help us in standing our ground before Satan. The first one, as, as we keep the fact that we are saved by Jesus Christ in our minds, our identity stays in the forefront of our minds as we fight the devil. The devil is going to say all kinds of things about you. The devil is going to say all kinds of things of who may, what makes you up. But if you understand that you are first and foremost a Christian, a follower of Christ, one who stands in Christ, that your identity is in Christ, that is going to stop the devil. There, and the attacks are going not are going to be ineffective. So it is of the utmost importance that we think of ourselves as saints, as saints who sin and not sinners. And that might strike you uh, wrong, 
uh, because you know our whole lives we've been told that we are, we are Christians, but we are still sinners. Uh, historically, that's been used. Uh, Martin Luther used to talk about uh, being a saint and a sinner at the same time. But as I look, as I actually did that, I looked at every time the word sinner is used in the New Testament, it's never used to describe one who has come to faith in Jesus Christ. We, we, we still sin. All of us still sin. So I'm not saying that we're perfect. But it's important how we think of it. Because we think of ourselves as sinners, guess what we're going to do? We're just going to sin. But if we think of ourselves as saints who sin, that sin is contrary, uh, contrary to what we are in Christ, then that way of thinking is going to give us great motivation to be faithful to Him by His grace. Satan does not want us to find our identity in Christ. He's going to be happy with us finding our identity in anything else, even in good things, as long as it's not Christ. He's happy with our final identity, our ultimate identity in other things, like our ethnicity. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a white person. I'm a brown person. I'm a black person. I'm an Asian person. And we make those as our ultimate identities. We're going to fail in our lives. Because our ultimate identity is in Christ. As a matter of fact, we can't have racial discussions if we are not agreed that our identity is in Christ. These things are important, but they're not of ultimate importance. If that's how you stand, you're going to fall. Because that's ultimately not who we are. Or we will find our identity, and Satan will be happy to find our ultimate identity in our gender. That's been the whole thing, right? That's what's the... The heretic is the one who does not believe in gender identity these days. But it's important to know that you're a man or that you're a woman, and that's what God makes you from conception on. But ultimately, you are a Christian, a follower of Christ, a believer in Christ. That's your identity. Or Satan will be amazingly happy if we find our identity in our social class. I'm rich, or I'm poor, or I'm in the middle, or whatever it is. As important as that might be, and as we should fight for justice, that, uh, that people have access to uh, things, and to justice, and so on, um, that's not our ultimate identity. Our ultimate identity is in Christ. Or Satan will be happy if you find your identity in your vocation. I'm a pastor. I'm a writer. I'm a music teacher. I'm a retired engineer. I'm a nurse. Those things are true. But they're not ultimate. What you did for a living does not ultimately describe you. You are in Christ. Satan will be ultimately happy if you made your ultimate identity in your family of origin. I'm, um, I'm a hunter. You know, that means I'm better than everybody else. No. Or I'm a Lero. That means... You know, that are more righteous. No, I said my family itself. No, that doesn't mean that. <laughs> um, our families of origin are important, and we love them, but ultimately, that's not what identifies us. We are Christians. Our political affiliation. I'm a Republican, therefore I'm righteous. I'm a Democrat, therefore I'm righteous. This is going to upset a lot of you, 
but that's my goal in life. <laughs> Christianity is a whole lot more purple than we are willing to acknowledge. We are Christians. We're not Republicans. We're not Democrats. That's not our ultimate identity. We are Christians. And that's what we need to find our identity. Satan would be amazingly happy if our ultimate identity was found in our position regarding masks. We stand, oh, I'm a non-masker. Let's burn the masks. Or oh, I'm a masker. I'm, I love you, so I'm going to wear a mask. You, your position, if that's why you lay, if you're super proud that you don't wear a mask, or you're super proud that you wear a mask, you're missing Christ. That's not your identity. There's no ultimate standing power in any of these identities. As a matter of fact, Satan rejoices in all these identities. As you put on the helmet of salvation, you keep in mind that your identity is in Christ. And as we put on the helmet of salvation, we fight the devil knowing that he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. There's no greater power and freedom in thinking rightly about whom we are in Christ. We're able to fight with victory and freedom as we do that. And as, number two, as we fight Satan and stand for the sake of Christ, as we put on the gospel, the the helmet of salvation, knowing that we have been, are being, and will be saved by Jesus, we will be helped, and we will fight this fight with hope. And again, as Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5.8, that we put on, we put on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. Brothers and sisters, we are not fighting a losing battle. We're, the church is going to win this. Christ has defeated Satan on the cross and the resurrection. He is coming back to vindicate his people. Even in the most desperate moments of our war, we can have hope Real and true hope. Because Christ has won it. In 1 Corinthians 10, 13, Paul says, No temptation has overtaken you. Uh, the word temp- the, the, the uh, Greek language only has one word for temptation, trial, or struggle. So you can, all these words work here. So no temptation, no trial, no struggle has overtaken you except what's common to men. That is, nothing that's superhuman has come upon you. Only what is human. And also means that you're not the only one going through this. You know how often we say, oh, if they just understood me. Now, they, nobody can understand what I'm going through because I'm the only one going through this. Let me break it to you. You're not that special. No temptation has overtaken you except what's, what's common to men. But God, every time you find a but God in the Bible, is going to be a good thing. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. He's not going to allow you to be to struggle, to be tested beyond what you're able. But with the temptation, with the struggle, with the trial, will also make the way of escape. That you, and this is important, that you may be able to bear it. The promise is not that you're going to, the struggle is going to be moved. The promise is not that the trial is going to be moved, but that you're going to be able to bear that trial and struggle in your life. That is great hope. At the darkest moments of our lives, at the bottom of the pit, as you're going through Psalm 88 in our own lives, Christ is still our Savior. He's still our victor. We're still going to win this war against Satan because Satan's been defeated at the cross and at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Thirdly, 
as we keep in mind what Christ has done for us, as we put on that helmet of salvation, and what, as we keep in mind what He's doing for us and in us, we have purpose in life and in the fight. The, help, the helmet of salvation reminds us that, that we have a purpose. We, we're going somewhere. We're doing something that's important. Paul says in Titus chapter 2, verse 11, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us. Here's, this is why the grace of God has appeared in salvation for us. It teaches us that denying ungodliness, that's a purpose in life. What should I do today? What's my purpose today? Deny ungodliness. And worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, for the blessed hope, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great Lord, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So the helm of salvation, reminding us what God is doing for us in Christ, helps us to live with purpose. We have purpose for our lives. No Christian lives a purposeless life. Now, want to live a, want to live a purpose-driven life? Here it is, Titus 2, 14, 11 through 14. Peter says the same thing when he says, Beloved, I beg you as soldiers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may be they may by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. We put on the helmet of salvation, and we're reminded that we are living as pilgrims and sojourners. Pilgrims and sojourners don't care a lot of stuff. They don't put a lot of value on the things of this world. This is not all that there is in life. This is not our best life yet. If you've ever been camping, and I'm not, I mean real camping, not glamping, you know that the idea of being a sojourner, a pilgrim, is not an idea of comfort. And that's this life is described as a life of a pilgrim, of a life of a camper. One who pitches his tent as he goes. So this can't be, if that's the illustration, we know for a fact that this cannot be the, good, the best life because camp, camping stinks. <laughs> And moving through life as pilgrims allows us to really keep our hands open and not hold tightly the things of this world. We can let go even of our reputations in this world. It doesn't matter. We're going somewhere. We have a purpose in this life. Everything can be held with open family, open hand. Job, open hand. Status in life, open hand. What people think of us, Open hand. Because we're pilgrims. We're not carrying anything with us. Fourthly, putting on the helmet of salvation, living with our salvation in mind will also help us to treasure what we should treasure. In Matthew 6, Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Clarity about who Christ is, clarity about our need of Him, clarity about our faith in Him will help us value the right things. Clarity has a way to focus us. That, that, to, that was the case with David. David spent a year after 
the issue with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah, hiding his sin. To Nathan the prophet, who loved him enough to risk his life and came and come to confront David. And he remembers the story he tells us there. He said in Second Samuel twelve, eleven and twelve, uh, about this 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 rich guy that had all kinds of lambs. He lived next door to a poor guy, he had one ewe lamb, and when guests came over, uh, the rich guy said, I don't want to kill any of my lambs, I'm gonna take the little poor guy's little ewe lamb. And David uh, Nathan asked David, What should happen to that man? Remember what the self-righteous reaction of David was? That man must die. And Nathan lovingly, truthfully, and directly said, what? You. Oh, actually, Nathan said, thou art. No, you are the man. The gospel gives us that clarity. You are the man. You are the woman. And when David got that clarity, he was focused. And in Psalm 32, verse 7, he's able to say, you are, talking to God through Jesus Christ, you are my hiding place. You shall preserve me from trouble. You shall surround me with songs of deliverance. And so as we put on the helmet of salvation, as we are reminded of what Christ has done for us, we are focused. Now we know who we are and what God wants from us. Fifthly and lastly, putting on the helmet of salvation helps us to keep our priorities straight. First uh, Philippians 3, 7 through 11, a passage in coming uh, into my studies a lot lately in our sermons. But there Paul says, But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Remember all the things that were that he, he, he was kind of was lost? Being from a faithful family, which is a great thing. Being from a prestigious tribe of Israel, which is a, is a good thing. Being a strict observer of the Word of God, that's a good thing. Being able to speak the language of the Old Testament in this context was a great thing. And he says, I count those things lost. Why? For Christ. Yet, indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence. I don't think he could add more superlatives, more big words here. Yet, indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may, give, that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know Him and the power of of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. We get easily distracted with less important things. I think that's, that's a universal statement. We as Christians get distracted with less important things. We act as if the gospel has been choked by the affairs of this life. Remember the parable of the four soils that Jesus spoke, that the, a sower came and spread seed and the seed fell in four different types of soils? Sometimes we, as true believers of Jesus Christ, behave as the, the, the soil that the affairs of this life choked the gospel. But we are not that. We are the fruitful soil. We are the ones who are here to produce fruit in abundance. We are soil, the soil that produces good yield because of the gospel of Jesus Christ.
Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, was born of a woman, lived a perfect life on behalf of his people who could not live perfectly before God. He died on the cross as a punishment for the sins of his people, at which time God the Father poured on him the infinite weight of his wrath. On the third day, on that glorious third day, he rose from the dead, securing by his resurrection new life for all his people. All of this so that those who believe that Jesus Christ did all these things for him may not perish but have everlasting life in fellowship and harmony with God. That is the gospel. Without a firm belief in what I just said, there is no hope of a relationship with God as a loving God, and there is no hope of eternal life. And all that is necessary for what Christ accomplished in his, in his life, death, and resurrection to be applied to you in faith is faith. Faith in him and nothing else. And that's the helmet we put on so that we are fit to fight the war of life. Let us pray together. Father in heaven, we, we thank you for our salvation, Jesus Christ. We thank you for his life, death, and resurrection and ascension. And we thank you that he's coming back for us. In the meantime, we pray that you would sanctify our minds as we think about what he has done for us. That those, that, that thought would translate itself in the way that we fight and stand against the wiles of the devil. Help us to fight. Help us to live for your glory. Help us to get to the end. For asking in Jesus' name, amen.